This morning we will be looking for the second time in the book of 1 Samuel, beginning in chapter 2 with verse 12, taking it down through the end of the chapter to verse 36. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel 2, beginning at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pot or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great. In the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Then there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest offering 
the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we come before you this morning seeking the truth of your word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would convict us of our sin that you would comfort us with the comfort of the gospel, that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There is a problem that comes when the church sees difficulties and problems out in the world. And that problem is that often we can become too focused on the world outside the church. And as a result, we can fail to see the sin that is inside the church. We can fail to see the problems that are inside the church. But we can also fail to see how God is at work inside the church. We are so focused on what is going outside that we miss what's going inside. Today we will look at when the church contributes to the darkness of the world. And we will see that God does not abandon his people, but that he is at work by his mercy and grace. Today as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see three things. First, we see that religion does not equal regeneration. That is, that merely having the form of religion does not mean that we have the power thereof. Secondly, we see the reality of God's judgment within the church. And this is a mercy to us to see that God is at work in his church. And then finally, we will see the relentless triumph of God's will. That God is always working to see that His will is established and His will will 
triumph. Religion does not equal regeneration. The reality of God's judgment and the relentless triumph of God's will. Well, let's start then by looking at the darkness. We start here because it's so obvious. We've seen or understand the symptoms of what is going on here in Israel. We know from the book of Judges that Israel is wandering from the worship of the true God. We've seen a high priest who has very little discernment, the high priest who cannot tell the difference between a woman praying and a drunkard. And now here, we see the high priest Eli's sons. We meet his sons who are experts in religion. They hold amongst the most important of job descriptions. They are priests at Shiloh, priests at the tabernacle of the Lord. They should be men whom we respect. They should be men pointing us to the Lord. But instead, the text is up front and it is very direct. Verse 12 tells us that they were worthless men. Now, you need to get the full idea of what the text is telling us here. When we are told that they are worthless, it doesn't just mean that they're good for nothing, that they're lazy that they sit around. No, this word in Hebrew means sons of Belial. And what it means is it has the connotation, Belial has the connotation of death, of wickedness, of rebellion. You see, they are sons of wickedness and rebellion. They are against God. And we may also recall that the immediate preceding reference of sons of Belial, is at the end of the book of Judges, when the men who murder the concubine of the Levite are called worthless men. This same phrase, sons of Belial. So these are not just lazy fools. These are wicked men, wicked in the sight of God. Now they should have been the finest men. They were men of Israel. They had grown up in a household that had been around the things of the Lord. The scriptures would have been read to them when they were young. They would have been prayed for as they grew up. They had been set apart by God. And that as a result, they had no excuses at all. They had all the access to religion and theology that someone could want. And they were in the holiest of places, Shiloh, the tabernacle. Now let me stop just for a moment and give a brief aside here to our young people. There is a sense in which you sit in the place of Eli's sons. Your parents are bringing you here today to worship the Lord, to sing His praises, to hear His word, to pray to Him. And so you too will be without excuse if you abandon the Lord. You have every opportunity to know the Lord, to read of Him, to pray to Him, to have others teach you of him. Eli's sons should have been the finest examples of men in Israel. Instead, they treat people with contempt and disdain. Notice from the beginning of our passage, they don't even interact with people. It is the priest's 
job description to go to those who are bringing sacrifices and to help and assist them in the sacrifice. That's what a priest does. But not these priests. They're too busy. They're too important. And so what they do is they send servants to go and speak to the pilgrims who have come to sacrifice. They believe that they're above these other people. They're not willing to serve at all. But more than that, they're actually willing to threaten people. Look at verse 16. If the sacrifices are not given first to the priests, even before they're offered, they'll be taken by force, the servant says. Now, I want you to imagine what that might look like in our context. Let's assume that you've come here this morning and you're ready to worship the Lord. You have your your Bible with you. You've got your hymnal open to the first hymn. You are ready and willing to worship the Lord. And let's say that instead I send one of the deacons over to you and say... Get out of your chair. Well, why? I'm here. And the deacon says, get out or I'm going to punch you in the nose. Get out now. Imagine how shocking that would be. Not just because of the rudeness, not just because of the threat, but because of the context. A context of worship and holiness. That's what's going on here in our text. They had no respect for people, but even beyond that, they had no respect for God's law. They thought they were beyond any judgment. They actually turned, verse 22 tells us, the holy place of the Lord into a place of sin and iniquity. They actually sinned with the women who were supposed to be serving the tabernacle and the worship of the Lord. Now, we might be reminded of the money changers in the days of the New Testament and how they so angered our Lord Jesus Christ by defiling the worship of God that he overturned their tables and drove them out. But you have to understand what the money changers were doing was a hundred times better than what Hophni and Phinehas were doing. At least the money changers could argue they were trying to facilitate The worship of God. Now, they were robbing people while they were doing it. But at least they were, to some extent, trying to help. Not so the sons of Eli. This is worse. Their greed leads to gross immorality. And it was open before everyone. Now, imagine that. Even you young people understand this. Now, I'm not saying this ever happens in your home. But let's just just imagine for a moment that you want to get dessert before dinner. Probably never happens, right? But let's imagine with me. I'm guessing what you don't do is yell, Mom, I'm going to get dessert now and ruin my dinner. Is that okay? Probably what you try to do is sneak a bit. Do it out of sight. Not get caught. Not so Hophni and Phinehas. They're doing it right in front of everyone to see. They are so bold in their sinning, they are declaring it to the world. Everyone knows about it, we see later. Word has come to Eli from all over Israel because they are working against God's law. Now, it wasn't just that they had a contempt for God's law. It would be bad enough 
if leaders behaved in this fashion. But it's even worse. They used the worship of God for their own desires. They had a contempt for God's worship. Now you have to understand what the sacrifices at this time were supposed to be. The Israelites brought their sacrifices, and what sacrifice this is, is the peace offering. It's an offering for sin that we read about in Leviticus chapter 7. And there is a provision in the sacrifice for a portion of the sacrifice to be given to the priests. And those of you that like good barbecue will recognize that it's actually a good portion of the sacrifice. It was the thigh and the breast. But that's not enough for Hophni and Phinehas. You see, for them, what they do is, in addition to what God has given to them, they send their servants down with a big, old, three-pronged barbecue fork. And they go into every pot, every pan, every place, and they dip it in and try and grab as much meat as they can. And they say, by the way, this is ours too. We're taking that also. Now, again, you have to imagine and understand that this is an act of worship. This is not an outdoor barbecue. This is worship going on, and they are thrusting themselves into the worship of God, distracting people as they are worshiping, merely so that they can get more for themselves. But that's still not enough. We see in verse 16 that what they want is the raw meat. Now again, we have to understand what is going on here. This text is also an encouragement and a help to us to do things like to read the book of Leviticus. For many of us, the book of Leviticus is foreign and hard to understand. But if we understand the book of Leviticus, if we go to chapter 3, we will find out that in all of the sacrifices, the fat is only to go to God. No one else is to get the fat. Now, we think this is because in ancient days, the Israelites thought that the fat was a source of strength to the animal. And what God is saying here is, I don't want you relying on any strength other than me. You give me all the fat. You don't need strength from an animal. All you need is me. And so you can imagine what a worshiper would be thinking when the priest's servant comes up and says, give me the meat now before you fry the fat. Well, they're going to say exactly what they say in our text. Well, wait a minute here. That's that's God's. Please, let us sacrifice the fat first, and then you can have what you want, even though it's more than you're supposed to have, even though it's more than you took with the fork. Go ahead, but just let us worship properly. Don't make us sin. You see the response from Hophni and Phinehas' servants? Do it now, or we'll take it by force. You see, they have no respect at all for the worship of God, and they are called to oversee the worship of God. They knew no shame. And this, of course, verse 17 tells us, was a great sin before God. Now, Can we be surprised if the worship of God suffers in this context? If the leaders treated the worship of God in this way, what of the people? You see, 
it's especially incumbent upon those who lead in worship, who are the leaders of Christ's church, to seek Him and Him first, to glorify the Lord so that others might be drawn to Him, not to push them away from the Lord. But the reality is that their contempt for God's law and their contempt for God's worship, as bad as that was, was not the root of the problem. The root of the problem was something else. The root of the problem we see in verse 12 was that they did not know the Lord. Here they were chosen to lead in the worship of God and they didn't know God. Now there are two things going on here. When you hear that phrase, what probably immediately comes to your mind is that they were unconverted. They didn't know the Lord. Someone should bring them the gospel. They don't know the Lord. And and that is true. But there is more behind this phrase here in the Old Testament. The place that we get the context for that phrase, they did not know the Lord, is actually Exodus 5. It's when Moses is before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh looks at Moses and with complete disdain says, I don't know the Lord. I'm Pharaoh. I don't have to listen to this Lord. I don't know him, and I don't care about him. You see, it's a statement not just of a lack of knowledge, but of rebellion. It is a statement that they don't have a relationship with the Lord, and they don't want one. And so it would be clear to us that they should not be priests. Now, before we judge too quickly the Israelites, realize that today across America, we have those in positions of authority, so-called pastors, so-called worship leaders, who do not know the Lord. And it's evident from their actions. And it's evident from their words. That's why we have in the middle of a Christian worship service a prayer to Allah and readings of the Koran. It's why we have in supposed worship services blessings of pets and clowns handing out communion. All we have to do is look around us in America and we see people who do not know the Lord leading in so-called worship. And when we see that, we understand the sad state of the church In America. You see, this was not ignorance that Eli's sons were all about. It was about rebellion and defiance. Pharaoh had refused to submit and honor the Lord. And that's exactly what we see here. Even when they so-called serve the Lord, they're only doing it for their own gain. Now, we expect to see this outside the church. But inside? God is jealous of his authority. And because of that, he will not allow such rebellion and dishonor to continue. So how does then God respond? He responds with the reality of his judgment. Now, you see, it should have been that the authorities should have corrected the problem. But the big problem is, is that the authority in charge is the father of the two who are sinning. And it is very clear from this text, even though we don't know the family life of the house of Eli, it's very clear from this text that Eli has allowed this to go on and on and on. That he has allowed his children to sin, that he has not corrected them. 
Now this is, I think, a point of application for parents. If your children lie and you continue to overlook it, do not be surprised if they grow up to be liars. If your children hurt other people and you never correct them, do not be surprised that they grow up to be people who are hurtful and wicked. You see, Eli here needed to intercede in the lives of his sons. Now he does, according to our text, make a very late and very weak attempt. He does this in verse 22. We have to remember that Eli is very old at this time. He is a grandfather, a sort of great-grandfather's age. So his sons are more than grown. And he finally, and only because, he is hearing reports from all of Israel. You could just imagine, Eli probably can't go out in public, but someone comes up to him pleading, would you please control your kids? Can I tell you about what happened the last time I went up to sacrifice? How he embarrassed me? How he threatened to hit my wife? Can I tell you how horrible things are, Eli? And so he is shamed after a fashion to finally say something to them. But he did as little as possible. Now think about what was being done here. Think about how public the sin was. And Eli knew exactly what was going on and exactly how wrong it is. He gives some generality to his statements to his sons. But it's very clear that none of this is a surprise to him. He knows exactly what's going on. He's not underestimating the sin. And so he speaks to them. And he starts in verse 23 by asking them why. Why do you do such things? Now... The Bible doesn't always directly give us advice to parents, but I would say here is an illustration that is very helpful. When your child does something sinful, don't ask them why. Because the good and honest answer is going to be something like, because I wanted to. Or because I could get something that I wanted. That's not really room for correction. You don't start with the why... Is, is Eli expecting Hophni and Phinehas to give him a good answer? That he can go, oh, okay, I didn't realize that was why you did it. I mean, seriously. But he does at least move in the next verse, at the end of this verse, 23, and in verse 24, and at least telling them what they're doing is wrong. He says, for I hear of your evil dealings, and it is not a good report He's at least willing to tell them what they're doing is wrong. And he goes a little bit further than that. He tells them how serious it is in verse 25. He says, you know, if you sin against a man, God could mediate for you. But if you sin against God, who can mediate for you? He's telling them, you're doing horrible things. And you have no hope if you continue down this path. Who can intercede for you? But I want you to notice what's missing in these verses. Nowhere in these verses is a call to repent. A call to change what they're doing. To be sorrowful for what they've done wrong. To ask for forgiveness. To promise not to do it anymore. To forsake a life of sin. 
and to live a life of godliness. And you see, that is the critical point. When we are in sin, we do not need more information. We don't need whys or causes or excuses. What we need is repentance. Your sin does not go away because you can explain something that someone has done badly to you. You are still responsible for your own actions. We must have a call for change and act on that change. But they ignored him. Look at verse 25. They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now I want you to see that the first part of this is sad. But it's expected. We often don't want to hear a rebuke when someone comes up to us in correction. Instead, we want to make up excuses. We want to point to what others have done. Or we want to simply ignore what they've done. We do that to our own danger. But we can see others' sins better than our own, can't we? But the second part of this is frightening. Because you see, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that Hophni and Phinehas are completely innocent? That all of this is some grand scheme by God who wants to kill them? No. Because they were already confirmed in their wickedness and evil. What this statement is telling us, a warning for you and for me, is that there comes a point in time when God gives us over to our own sin. When someone is so committed to sin, when someone is so committed to rebellion, God will confirm him in it. And that means that that person will be deaf and blind to any warnings or pleas for repentance. This should make us think soberly. It is true that Jesus pleads with us to forsake sin. It is true in the scriptures that Jesus pleads with us to come to him and to find rest. But there comes a time when the rejection of Jesus is so complete that our hearts are so hardened against him that the pleas of Jesus are no longer heard. And God is just in doing this. And our task is not to understand how that is so but rather to flee to Christ while we have the opportunity. Now, we might be looking on in this situation without any hope at all. Those who are in charge are corrupt and sinful. Those who are in charge of the priests are not listening at all, not doing anything, will not hold them to account, and they will not listen to correction. The world has taken over the church, and the worldview that God doesn't matter, that right and wrong doesn't matter, and that all greed leads me to take whatever I want has taken deep root in the church. But God breaks in with a merciful word. An unknown prophet, in verse 27, comes to Eli. Now, I love the way that Scripture does this. It could be ironic, almost humorous. 
Do you notice that in the middle of a passage that is built around men trying to be somebodies, to be in charge, to take what they want, to go out and get it, that God sends a nobody to declare his word. Literally, he's a nobody. We don't know who he is. We don't know what his name is. We won't know until glory. But we know he is a man of God. And that phrase tells us that he is a prophet. That he has the word of God in his mouth. And that he brings it to Eli. To speak for the Lord. Now Eli could have done more. Eli could have removed his sons from the priesthood. But I think what we are seeing here is Eli was unwilling to be embarrassed by removing his sons. Now the irony is, he was willing to be embarrassed by their behavior, but he was not willing to be embarrassed by what would happen if he corrected them. And so God comes and exposes the sin and announces judgment in the church, and he does this to preserve his church. You see, we might focus upon the judgment on Eli and his sons, but remember, the reason for this judgment is to protect the church. If God doesn't protect the church, who will? It's actually a very merciful breaking in by God. And the man of God then reveals to Eli all of the blessings that God had bestowed on his family. Blessings that they had ignored. God revealed himself in verse 27. He tells in a series of questions all of these blessings that had come to Eli and his family. He says, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt under Pharaoh? God reminds Eli that he had revealed himself to Israel and had come to their rescue. And in revealing himself, it was not just who he was, but what his will was and what his word was. He'd given the law to his priests. Who could have known better than them? In verse 28, he tells us that he had chosen them as priests. He says, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. Now, he's reminding them of the solemn duty that had been given to the priests. To go up to the altar is to bring the sacrifices of God's people for their sin. To burn incense, which they did twice a day, was to offer up intercession for the people. That's why in the New Testament, the prayers of the saints are compared to incense. And then thirdly, to wear an ephod had a very specific meaning. And ephod was a particular robe that the priest wore. And on that robe were put and set jewels. And also inscribed on that robe were all of the names of the tribes of Israel. And so when the priest wore that ephod, he was representing all of the people of God to God. These were blessings that God had given to them. He'd also provided for their very means to live. We see here at the end of verse 28, we're reminded that the offerings were given so that they could eat because they had no land. But the problem is, is that those who have only want to take more. They refused to be satisfied. 
They refused to acknowledge God. They want more and more for themselves. And all of the blessings that they had ignored fell by the wayside. They'd actually used these blessings to accomplish their sin. Now this is something that you and I must think about. There is a temptation to ignore our blessings when we want more. Isn't there? The better course is for us to rehearse our blessings to ourselves whenever we are in need. Because it gives us perspective and it helps us to see the Lord at work. Now the result of all of this, the man of God says, is that judgment will come. That promises will be lost. The house of Eli had been given extraordinary grace and they were a part of a greater promise we see in verse 30. I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor and those who despise me I will lightly esteem. What's going to happen is their participation in the promise of God is going to come to an end. Now, it's not that God's promise is going to be revoked. Man's sinfulness cannot undo the promise of God. If that were true, then there would be no promise of God that would stand. God's promises stand on His character and His word. But it does mean that Eli's family will lose their participation in the promise of God. The priesthood will continue in the family of Aaron. That's whom the promise was made to, Aaron and his children. And you may recall that Aaron had four children. The two eldest, Nadab and Abihu, were killed for offering strange fire before the Lord. The third was Eleazar. The fourth was a man named Ithamar. Eli's family is descended from Ithamar. And what we are going to see is the priesthood will be forcibly taken from Eli's family, from the family of Ithamar, to the family of Eleazar. God's word will remain true, but there will be a judgment that comes upon those who reject the Lord. Eli's family will completely lose their place among the priests. Now, there's something else that we need to understand here. God is very, very specific about this judgment. He says there will only be one left, and he will only be left to weep. And he says, you'll know this is true because both of your sons will die on the same day. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't understand how modern-day fortune tellers make money. Because they talk to you on the phone and they say things like, you're about to have big changes in your life. There are things that are discouraging and I think encouraging things will happen to you. They try to be as vague as possible so that anything that happens can be shoehorned into their prophecy. Not God. You don't get more specific than both of your sons will die on the same day. Now what are the odds of that? 100% when God says it. You see, God is very specific in His Word. There is no way to guess whether He is true or correct. He gives us the encouragement of very specific prophecy. And we will see this in months to come, come true before our very eyes in 1 Samuel 22. How all of the priests are gathered together and they are all slaughtered except 
one. A man by the name of Abiathar. All of Eli's family that are priests are killed. And one is left. Except for that one will shortly have the priesthood taken away from him by Solomon. Because he rebels against Solomon. And Solomon takes the priesthood away from Abiathar. And gives it to a faithful man named Zadok. Of the family of Eleazar. Of the family of Aaron. And all that will be left for Abiathar is to weep and to wish he had the position. Exactly as God says. God says it. It happens. Now why is all of this happening? It's happening because God will be honored. We cannot dishonor God and expect Him to be silent. And when we honor God, He honors us. This verse, 1 Samuel 2.30, is a famous verse, especially if you are a film lover. Many of you perhaps have seen the film Chariots of Fire. Part of it is the story of Eric Little, who was a missionary, Christian missionary to China. But before he was a missionary to China, he was uh, a British runner in the Olympics. And his specialty was the 100-meter dash. And he found out that the last round, the last heat, the championship race for the 100-meter dash was to be held on a Sunday. And he said, the Lord tells me to honor the Lord's Day. I can't work on the Lord's Day. I can't run. And he had incredible pressure poured upon him. The king of England summoned him to himself and said, you must run. Our nation needs you. And Eric stood firm. He wanted to honor the Lord above the king of England. And so instead it was worked out that Eric would run the 400 meter, a race that he had never run before in his life. And before he ran, someone walked up to him and handed him a piece of paper on which was written 1 Samuel 2.30. Those that honor me, I will honor. And Eric ran that 400. And he not only won the gold medal, he broke the world record in the 400 meters. For the first time he had ever run the race. There is no loss to honoring God. You may not win a gold medal. You may not have riches showered upon you. But there is never any loss to honoring God. And you see, there is a fundamental difference between God and man. We can do all of the planning that we want. We can do all of the work that we are able, and we can still come up short. We can still be frustrated, but not God. The relentless triumph of God's will starts with God's unstoppable work. There is a saying that goes like this. The best laid plans of men go awry. Not so with God. He is never helpless. He is never frustrated. Now it may appear that way to you and to me because we want God to act on our timetable. And we want him to do the things we tell him to do. But God is never defeated, never frustrated. What we see is God's patience. His patience with sinners. Holding back his judgment. Giving an opportunity for faith 
and repentance. But God will not allow His church to be destroyed. He will not allow His church to be marginalized. And so the man of God comes and says, the church may have arrogant and immoral priests, but the Lord will have a faithful priest. He will not turn aside from His people. He will intervene. And He will intervene no matter the cost. Now where is that more true than in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? People rebel against God. They run away from God. They tell God to go away, get away from me. And yet God keeps pursuing. The only way that he could save sinners was at the cost of the life of his son. And so what does God do? He pays that price. He sends the Lord Jesus Christ to pay for our sins. Does that not give you hope? To know a God who will never stop and who is so stubborn in the way that he pursues his people and his purposes that he never turns away from them. The problem for us also is that God often works quietly. We miss God at work in his unstoppable purpose because we expect great and grandiose things. After all, he's God. We expect big things. And we ask ourselves, what is God doing? Why doesn't he strike down Hophni and Phinehas? Why doesn't fire consume them? What's God doing? Why is he asleep at the switch? Perhaps you feel like that in your life at times. But I want you to see what's going on here, that God is at work. We just need to look. Look at the text. We see all of the sins involved with the worship of God from verses 13 to 17. And then what do we see in verse 18? Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And then we hear about all these horrible moral sins in verse 18 through 25. And what do we see in verse 26? Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. As a matter of fact, just at the very beginning of this passage, in chapter 2, verse 11, and just at the very end of this passage, in chapter 3, verse 1, we see the same thing again. Bookends. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Dale Ralph Davis puts it so well. (coughs) He says, It is as if the text is whispering to us. Don't forget Samuel. Don't forget Samuel. He's ministering before the Lord. God is at work. Don't forget Samuel. You see, in one sense, the answer to the question in verse 35, who will the faithful priest be, is Samuel. But because Samuel is more of a prophet than a priest, I think we have to look even further on. Because God does also work finally and completely. The Lord declares in verse 35 that he will have a faithful priest. Now, who will that be? Some say it could be Samuel. Some say that there's another candidate, that it's the gentleman that I referenced before, Zadok, who is a faithful priest. But the problem with that is Zadok's family line ends. It does not carry out into our present day. So, who is this? One forever. 
Who is this one with a sure house? Who is the one who will ever sacrifice for the people of God? Who is the one who will ever, by incense, intercede for the people of God? Who is the one who will represent the people of God by wearing the ephod? There's only one. It's the anointed one that Hannah spoke of in verse 10. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The faithful priest that God will bring to set everything right is Jesus. He not only fixes the problems that others bring to us. He resolves our sin. He resolves our rebellion. He is the one who establishes the kingdom of God. He is the ever faithful anointed one. Let's pray.